This is Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today, so please enjoy this encore broadcast recorded on August 19th, 2022. 30 years ago, Reliable Sources was born. Not much lasts on TV for three decades, but Reliable is now the longest running program in the history of CNN because media issues are universal and they're always evolving. Media criticism can improve media diets. It's the strongest arguments about improving the press are based on knowing how it operates and why. Good argument that he doesn't get to make anymore on CNN. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling there's something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle. I am from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Glad to have you here with us on the Bradcast, where collectively we have been hoping to, helping to educate the electorate going on 20 years now. Incredibly enough. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. Yes, educating the electorate. That is the idea. Uh, it, well, it's supposed to be the idea. That's theoretically the idea. I wish there was more uh, media outlets who... Uh, shared that idea. That was uh, at the top of the show there. You heard Brian Stelter of CNN last March celebrating 30 years of CNN's media accountability program called Reliable Sources, uh, which he hosted for the past nine years. Uh, He was announcing plans that day, celebrating 30 years, but also announcing that they had planned to expand the program, including to a daily program. That said, CNN has been caught up in the merger between Warner Brothers and Discovery and has a new chief in charge of the network who has just canceled reliable sources canceled the only legit media criticism show uh, not only on CNN but really anywhere else on uh, cable or broadcast television to my knowledge we'll be joined in a bit today by the great accountability journalist formerly of Washington Post's critical White House watch column during the George W. Bush years, later of HuffPost, then The Intercept, now of his own PressWatchers.org 
We will discuss what all of this means at CNN and how the media continue to fail to, yes, accurately educate the electorate amid the Trump era and all of uh, his and the Republican Party's continuing blatant lies that they still the media still seems to have trouble calling out as much. Uh, but first today, uh, several months ago, when we started discussing how the general broad consensus of the political media and the punditry class believed as gospel, uh, it, it just wasn't even a debate at the time that Democrats were headed for a wipeout in both chambers of Congress this November, as is the case usually historically during midterm elections for the party that holds the White House, especially when they have an unpopular president. We warned you many months ago now to ignore that conventional wisdom, the conventional wisdom on all of that during these decidedly unconventional times. Why? Well, uh, we could see, uh, I guess, something that the rest of the media or many in the media could not see. We could see coming down the line the, uh, you know, stuff that the so-called experts and political pundits did not seem to be taking notice of for some reason. Among them, the uh, then coming Supreme Court decision likely at the time to overturn Roe v. Wade, which has subsequently happened. All of them, any Troubles for the disgraced former president that seemed to be heading towards a climax as the election nears, not to mention the horrible candidates that Trump was backing in Republican primaries all over the country who seemed on a glide path to win the GOP nominations, but then potentially lose the general elections because they were so insane. Well, over the course of those many months, the tide has clearly changed, and finally, uh, folks in the media are beginning to notice. It's still going to be an uphill climb for Democrats this year, but polls have moved in their favor in uh, recent weeks, particularly for the U.S. Senate. Trump's troubles have obviously gotten nothing but worse. Democrats and Joe Biden have managed to pass a number of really critical pieces of legislation, even with the barest of majorities in both houses of Congress. And yes, those terrible primary candidates that Trump backed have indeed gone on to win their GOP uh, nominations in the primaries. There are other factors and there are more and more polls that now seem to be bearing all of this out. But just as uh, today's latest reminder of how these are decidedly unconventional times that don't don't generally fit into historical models for midterm elections. Maryland's popular but termed out Republican governor Larry Hogan has ratcheted up the rhetoric about the state's new GOP gubernatorial candidate Dan Cox describing him as mentally unstable. Oh, hello. Uh, Governor Hogan, who has previously called Cox a, quote, QAnon whack job, described the GOP nominee as, quote, a nut. During a recent radio interview, he reiterated his prediction that Cox has, quote, no chance whatsoever of being elected as Maryland's governor in November. He is not, in my opinion, mentally stable, said Hogan. He wanted to hang my friend Mike Pence and took three busloads of people to the Capitol. This is the Republican governor talking about the Republican nominee for governor in his own state. 
That sort of thing does not take place in conventional times, which these decidedly are not. Cox uh, handily defeated Hogan's own endorsed candidate last month in a primary largely viewed as a proxy war between Hogan, who himself has presidential ambitions, and former President Donald Trump, who endorsed Dan Cox, the crazy one. Normally, in conventional times, when that sort of thing happens, you know, the party doesn't always agree uh, during primaries, but they come together after a rough and tumble primary election. Not this time. And now the governor is, you know, going on the air, calling the Republicans nominee for his job a nut and mentally unstable. St. Ronnie Reagan would be very upset. I yes, believe his original rule was thou shalt never the, criticize another Republican. That's right, the 11th commandment, yes. he called it. Uh, and claiming uh, that uh, this guy has no chance whatsoever of winning. Unconventional times indeed. In January of 2021, Cox had tweeted that he was organizing those buses to the Stop the Steal rally on January 6th. And then during the insurrection, he actually tweeted that Vice President Mike Pence was a traitor. Quote, a traitor. That is not the sort of thing that happens in conventional times. During his uh, radio interview, Hogan said he has no plans to campaign for Cox, who, by the way, sued him for imposing coronavirus restrictions at the height of the pandemic and attempted to impeach him earlier this year, according to Washington Post. Asked if he is uh, hurting the GOP by not backing its gubernatorial nominee, Governor Hogan said his decision not to endorse Cox, who he described as, quote, not a typical candidate, does not make him disloyal to his party. He said, I have been a loyal Republican since I was 18. I've been involved in every single election, but that doesn't mean I'm obligated to support wacky people that I don't agree with or like anything about them. By the way, earlier this week, Cox uh, agreed when he was asked about his uh, running mate who had said, quote, this is not a campaign of Republicans versus Democrat. This is a campaign between freedom and a socialist communist politics that has driven the people of this state to the ground. Is he calling Hogan a socialist uh, Well, it certainly communist? that seems to be what it sounds Good like. Good Lord, yes. words have no meaning anymore. Yes, that's what uh, the state was run by the Republican governor, Larry Hogan. He's both a socialist and, and a, a communist. communist. Go yeah, figure how yeah. that works. Anyway, Dan Cox is running against non-insane Democratic nominee for governor of Maryland, Wes Moore, in November, who, if successful, will be the first uh, African-American governor of the state. And uh, just a little bit more here from the loony, lying Trump right wing before we get to Frumkin today. Oh, and we're going to finish with some uh, today, no matter what, some much needed and long overdue Randy Rainbow today. Yay. So if nothing else, (laughs) you'll want to stick around for that. Uh, Anyway, before uh, Dan Frumkin here, uh, in the days since the FBI seized classified and top secret documents, From Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort, the former president and his allies have claimed that Trump had a, quote, standing order to declassify documents he took from the Oval Office to the White House residence. But now 18 former top Trump administration officials have told CNN 
that they never heard of any such order issued during their time working for Trump, and they believe the claim to be patently false. Eighteen of them. Several officials laughed at the notion, CNN reports in their exclusive. One senior administration official called it BS, but he used the actual word. And two of Trump's former chiefs of staff went on the record to knock down the claim. Quote, nothing approaching any order that foolish was ever given, said John Kelly, who served as Trump's chief of staff for 17 months from 2017 to 2019. And I can't imagine anyone that worked at the White House after me would have simply shrugged their shoulders and allowed that order to go forward without dying in the ditch trying to stop it. Mick Mulvaney, who succeeded John Kelly as acting White House chief of staff, also dismissed the idea, said uh, he told CNN he was, quote, not aware of a general standing order during his tenure. In addition, CNN spoke with former national security and intelligence officials you would think they would be informed about such a stand uh, standing order, as well as uh, White House lawyers and Justice Department officials taken together. CNN reports their tenure covers all four years of the Trump administration and many served in positions where they would either be included in the declassification process itself or at the very least be aware of such orders. Total nonsense, one senior White House official described it. Quote, if that's true, where is the order with his signature on it? If that were the case, there would have been tremendous pushback from the intel community and DOD, which would almost certainly have become known to intel and armed services committees on the Hill. Many of the officials spoke to CNN on the condition of anonymity, But many others went on the record. Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, called Trump's claim, quote, a complete fiction. Olivia Troy, who was a homeland security advisor to former President Mike Pence, called the idea of blanket declassification, quote, ludicrous. A president does have the authority to classify most but not all documents, I should note. As I believe Marcy Wheeler pointed out on this show a few days ago, there are certain nuclear-related documents uh, that a president cannot declassify, even if he or she wanted to, as she explained. But for those uh, that he can declassify, there is a formal process involved. And so far, there is zero evidence that Trump followed any such process for the documents in question that were stolen by him from the White House, stolen by Trump and taken with him to Mar-a-Lago in Florida, a club, a hotel in Florida when he left office. Of course, nowhere in CNN's otherwise uh, long and otherwise excellent exclusive do they point that out, that these elect that these uh, documents were stolen. And that is true even if they were declassified, even if there was this imaginary standing order. Even if he could wave a wand and say, I hereby declassify you. Correct. He's still not allowed to take them to Mar-a-Lago or anywhere. Correct. You can't take government documents. You can't take presidential records. That's all unlawful. And uh, so, you know, a good article from CNN, but it seems like it would certainly help to 
educate the electorate, to help them understand exactly what we are dealing with here, exactly what happened here, if they made it clear that no matter what, these documents were stolen. But, of course, CNN doesn't do that. Why? Well, uh, we will talk a bit about that, I hope, uh, next with the great Dan Frumkin, longtime uh, media critic. Stick around for that and much more. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. That's bradblog.com slash donate and thanks. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. I read the news today. Oh boy. Oh boy indeed. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. The day after the FBI and DOJ obtained a warrant to search the former president's home at his Mar-a-Lago private club and compound. From a federal judge who agreed there was probable cause that Donald Trump had stolen highly sensitive national security documents from the White House upon leaving office and violated several federal criminal statutes, including the Espionage Act. The Washington Post ran a story with this headline, quote, Merrick Garland vowed to depoliticize the Justice Department. Then the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago. Well, I guess the U.S. Attorney General must have lied because obviously the FBI search proves the politicization of the Justice Department or something. That was at least the obvious takeaway for those who would see that headline, would never read the actual article, but then pass the headline around on Twitter and elsewhere, liking it and sharing it virally. But of course, that is not at all what happened. Two different branches of the federal government, the executive branch, including the FBI, headed up by a Trump-appointed director, and the DOJ, headed up by a Biden-appointed attorney general, and the judiciary branch, in this case, headed up by a federal magistrate judge, found the evidence of probable cause of a crime to be compelling enough to approve the unprecedented search of a president's home. Or... If you're the Washington Post, a broken promise by yet another Democratic political apparatchik to use the mighty Department of Justice against a political enemy. Following criticism for that headline on Twitter, uh, sparked by it being highlighted uh, by NYU journalism professor and media critic Jay Rosen, the Post changed the story's headline on their website to the only somewhat less offensive FBI's search at Mar-a-Lago lands Merrick Garland in a political firestorm. Okay, how about right-wingers attack U.S. Attorney General for approving search to retrieve stolen national security documents from a former president? Because, you know, that's what actually happened. But... I guess the uh, Washington Post doesn't want to create a political firestorm for themselves 
from those right wingers. Better to put the heat on Democrats, maybe? They don't bite back quite as hard or send quite as many death threats, I guess. It's not only Washington Post, of course. The great James Fallows at his Breaking the News newsletter this week cited an article at New York Times from the uh, the day that President Biden signed the landmark Inflation Reduction Act, which includes the largest single investment in history to combat our climate crisis. Fallows wrote, Biden today signed a bill that appears to be the biggest forward movement on climate policy in decades that will limit health care costs for many people, that corrects the historic mistake of not letting Medicare negotiate drug prices, that increases some corporate taxes, that by most reckoning will lower the federal deficit, that by most reckoning will create more jobs. That was eked out through a 50-50 Senate whose 50 included Manchin and Cinema, and so on. You can oppose the bill, he wrote, as all Republican senators did, or you can find it lacking, as many progressives do. But by any normal standards, as Barack Obama said in a tweet, it is a BFD. But how did the New York Times frame that story in their news analysis, that news analysis column that day? Quote, even on Biden's big day, he's still in Trump's long shadow. For the sitting president, even a triumphant ceremony to sign major domestic legislation can hardly break through the nonstop attention on his predecessor. A story about a major historical accomplishment by any measure uh, from a sitting president and all members of his party in both chambers of Congress is framed by one reporter's feelings that the signing ceremony was overshadowed by a completely different president who wasn't there and a completely different story. The issue, writes Fallows, is presented as neutral, observable fact. What is in reality the writer's or the editor's judgment and assessment in this case that Biden remains in, quote, Trump's long shadow and that his major legislative success, quote, can hardly break through a focus on Trump in a story whose own framing is part of making it harder for Biden's legislative successes to, quote, break through. A related larger issue, Fallows observes, is that a news analysis of why Trump gets so much attention gives him more attention. He writes, last spring, after the tragic death of the incisive press critic Eric Bollert, who, of course, is, was a longtime friend of ours who appeared regularly on this program, he wrote about his and many other people's emphasis on framing the news, the idea that the assumptions behind the presentation, emphasis and selection of stories are generally far more important than usual indicators of simply bias. I believe Fallows is correct there. As he notes about the Times News analysis piece, quote, one can hardly break through nonstop attention to Trump. But the people pointing the spotlight have some responsibility for where the spotlight goes. This sort of framing, of course, permeates our discourse every day, even when you're not inundated with the obvious right wing bias of the propaganda outlet calling itself deceptively enough Fox News. And of course, none of this is new. I would argue that that sort of dishonest and misleading framing, even more than what we all know to be transparent BS on Fox News, 
for the better part of at least the last 20 years is what has helped devolve the nation's politics and discourse and, frankly, chances for its survival as a representative constitutional democracy to the place that we are now. There are not a lot of these great press watchers uh, like Rosen and Fallows and, of course, the late great Eric Bollert left. And now virtually none that work within the corporate media itself to call them out from inside their hallowed walls. On Thursday, it was announced that CNN is canceling its long-running Sunday media affairs show, Reliable Sources, and host Brian Stelter is departing the network. In a statement to NPR, Stelter said he's grateful for the show and his team's examination of, quote, the media, truth, and the stories that shape our world. CNN's new chief, Chris Licht, reportedly informed Stelter of the decision on Wednesday after he'd hosted the show for the past nine years. Licht has been making cuts throughout the network since taking the helm as part of Warner Brothers Discovery's takeover of the old Time Warner company, according to NPR. The program had been largely the only one left in the corporate news landscape, certainly on cable news, devoted to calling out the corporate news media itself. Joining us now is another one of those still remaining great media critics, someone with experience in both calling out the corporate media for their failures and being dismissed by the corporate media in part for having done so. Dan Frumkin is now the editor of Press Watch and, yes, a trailblazer in the area of accountability journalism, whether it's in media or politics. After serving 12 years as the Was at the Washington Post, heading up their wildly popular and daily must-read White House Watch column during the George W. Bush era, before he was unceremoniously dismissed himself despite the popularity and accuracy of his critical column. Since then, Frumkin has gone on to write for Huffington Post, The Intercept, and the Neiman Foundation's Watchdog Project. On his Twitter profile is the motto, quote, I afflict comfortable journalists. Nice. His Press Watch is an independent, nonprofit organization devoted to encouraging political journalists to live up to the highest standards of their profession. Also nice. Mr. Frumkin, it has been too many years since we've spoken on air. I greatly appreciate your willingness to join us again today. Welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you. It is, it is my pleasure. And that was a very, very thoroughly depressing and accurate <laughs> of where we are in our media environment right now. The only thing you left out was the URL of my website, which is, which is presswatchers.org. Oh, don't worry. I was going to get to that, but you're right. We can't get to it enough. Listen, I got a lot to get to today, Dan, uh, including what I see. And I, and I know you write a lot about a press watch or presswatchers.org uh, as, uh, <laughs> as the mainstream media's continuing failure to properly cover and or frame the Trump era. Admittedly, that is impossible. We struggle with it every day. And admittedly, it also, to be fair, includes uh, some great successes by the corporate media. But let me start w first here with CNN ending reliable sources. Do you have any sense of of why that was among the first to go amid this uh, corporate restructuring and a new guy at the head of CNN, and as importantly, what the loss of that program now means for accountability journalism and Americans who so desperately need more of it, not less. Well, I think it's a terrible, terrible move, and I think it, it's, a, it's a terrible indicator about what CNN is doing and where it's going. 
Um, I just published a column about that since I thought we'd talk about it. Um, and basically, uh, my conclusion is that uh, it's a huge win for uh, Fox. Uh, it's a huge loss for CNN and a huge win for Fox because because uh, Stelter was really one of the few mainstream media people who was willing to say that Fox News was all about spreading malicious lies and poisoning mm-hmm. the, the politics of our country. And uh, he wrote a book about it. He wrote about it re- frequently in his, in his you know, very indispensable newsletter. He, he, he got into it a lot on his show. And I think the reason that he was canned mm-hmm. was because he was basically the number one target of the right-wing media. And uh, it, as it mm-hmm. happens, the, the, the company that now owns CNN, the major stockholder, is a guy named John Malone, who is a, you know, a mm-hmm. cable company monopolist. And, mm-hmm. um, and he, uh, he has said in the past that he thought CNN should do something different, should have actual journalists for a change. And by actual journalists, he meant people like there were at Fox News. So what's happening here is CNN is clearly tacking towards the right. Mm-hmm. Um, it is this, this, the fact that this is the first major move they made is clearly a, a, a sacrifice on the altar of right-wing media. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to work. A, it's not going to work because they'll only want more. You give these people a scalp and they just want more. Mm-hmm. And B, it's just the exactly wrong thing for CNN to do. What CNN needs to do is be the anti-Fox, mm. is to stand up for truth as, as, as you violently and, <laughs> and, and emotionally and, and effectively as Fox lies. Mm-hmm. So I just find it a, a terrible thing. And, I, you know, and the thing is that, that they could, there's a business model for this. There's a lot of Democrats who watch Fox, I guess, because it's entertaining or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you had a really gripping, truth-based, reality-based mm-hmm. network, that reported the news with enthusiasm and enthusiastically refuted the, the misinformation. I think it would be a, I think it would be a great thing for this country. And and let me just respond to a point you make here. You say that uh, there's you know there's a market for the opposite of Fox to the counter of Fox. I don't think you mean uh, a, a network that lies on behalf of Democrats. <laughs> I, no. I, I think you mean the opposite Sorry. being uh, Fox News lies about everything. How about a, a media outlet that tells the truth about everything? And that's what's kind of maddening uh, when you note you know, that uh, Stelter, by and large, was let go because he was willing to criticize Fox. Over the past 10 or 20 years, uh, we've seen this, Dan, where criticism of Fox for lying and misleading has become, as the right-wingers successfully put it, and as the corporate media seems to agree, uh, that's a partisanship. You know, right. you're disagreeing because you must be a Democrat rather than disagreeing because, oh, Fox News just told a lie. Right. And as I wrote in, in my piece, I think the reason that, that the right hated Stelter and, and a few other people at, at CNN so much was not because they were, quote unquote, liberals, mm-hmm. but because they were uh, truth tellers. They were they were basically mm-hmm. not as credulous in the face of outrageous lies as a lot of their colleagues were. And for the people who spread disinformation and misinformation, the, the media's acquiescence to their lies is essential. Now, uh, there's another aspect of this that I, I find in many ways even more troubling. Uh, earlier this year in March, Stelter 
uh, celebrated, reliable sources, 30 years mm-hmm. on CNN. It's its longest-running show. They had plans at the time to expand it to a daily program on the now ill-fated CNN Plus streaming channel. Uh, but during that uh, celebratory episode, uh, Stelter uh, said this. I believe our biggest value add here is to inform people about how the media really works, why reporters do what they do, because the best critiques, the strongest arguments about improving the press are based on knowing how it operates and why. It is important to hold media outfits accountable from the inside, Dan Frumkin. And I I can throw all the bombs I want violently as a blogger or or independent broadcaster from here. But having insiders call out their fellow insiders, that's something that, you know, with the demise of reliable sources and The New York Times and Washington Post, I believe both having done away with their ombudsman or or public editor Mm -hmm. positions, there's really nobody... Uh, doing that anymore from the inside. Why is that or why was that so important to have a mechanism for media outlets to publicly hold themselves accountable from the inside with a public ombudsman of sorts like that? Right. Well, there's a distinction between the public editors whose job was specifically to hold their own institutions accountable and media critics like uh, Margaret Sullivan at The Washington Post or or, or uh, Brian Stelter at, at CNN. And the, the big difference was that, as, you know, I, as much of a fan of Stelter as I was, he was not very good at holding CNN accountable. Mm. He had a big blind spot for his own network. Mm-hmm. And Margaret Sullivan uh, has, you know, obviously, if you read, it, read her column, has felt like she couldn't criticize the Washington Post. So, But wasn't that, that, after, is, wasn't that after years of being at the, was she at the New York Times as their right, public editor? the public editor of the New York Times. Yeah. She was absolutely marvelous. Her job was specifically... Yeah. To, uh, to analyze and criticize the New York Times. But that's what she was hired to do, and mm-hmm. she was unfireable, basically, mm-hmm. at that point. She was not working for the editor of the newsroom. She was reporting directly to the publisher, who had given her a two-year contract mm-hmm. and couldn't break it unless he wanted to get a lot of egg on his face. So that's what's so great about public editors, is that the institution says, we ourselves feel we have a need to... For, you know, both explain ourselves better to the public, mm-hmm. but also there, there needs to be a place for the public to have its concerns addressed uh, by somebody not in the in and of the newsroom, but with access to the newsroom. Mm-hmm. And public editors were an incredibly valuable thing uh, when they were good. There were mm-hmm. some pretty stinky ones too. But uh, and then and then yeah, they were all ditched. Uh, yeah. And the, the excuse was, uh, it's hysterically funny, the excuse from the New York Times publisher was, we don't need a public editor anymore because we have social media. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, you know, that has a certain sense to it, except that you look at what they've been doing for the last 10 years, they've been scrupulously ignoring social media, mocking yeah. social media crit- criticism of themselves. They've been incredibly defensive about anything anybody tweets about them. And they've now, you know, pass all these rules telling reporters what they're allowed to tweet and not allowed to tweet. And one of the things they're not allowed to tweet is any criticism of the, of the Times or any other journalists. <laughs> and this is the same rules as the Post, Washington Post. So it's, uh, the public editors have not been replaced. Um, I, you know, I've always hoped that there would be a sort of critical mass mm-hmm. of media critics out there who would, you know, cumulatively have the, 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 the sort of the heft 
of one of these public editors, but it's never happened. And as you pointed out, we're becoming fewer and further between. And let me push back on only one point. You're, you're right. Stelter was not as critical of his own network as he was of others and of, of uh, print media. But there was someone to go to. If the noise got loud enough... Uh, you could sort of force Stelter to respond, uh, someone on the inside. There's really, it feels like there's just no one to even go to anymore uh, to get that response. You used to be well, able to I think to, the, the service yeah. he provided even more was just simply acknowledging, having somebody inside the media establishment acknowledging that the media was flawed, needed to be explored, was interesting, was important, that the way the media framed things was not you know, a, a, a sideshow, it mm-hmm. was the show. And uh, and so I don't think CNN, I don't think reliable sources was, was a way of CNN saying we ourselves want to be held accountable, mm-hmm. but it was, a, it was a way of saying that the media should generally be right. held accountable. Your, uh, your old paper, the Washington Post, uh, featured that horrible headline I mentioned uh, that was cited by Jay Rosen, Garland vowed to depoliticize justice, then the FBI search... Uh, at Mar-a-Lago, but you recently wrote a column arguing that was no fluke, that there seems to be two different schools within the Post, uh, within the editor's ranks, covering politics. You wrote, uh, reading the Washington Post these days, I almost feel like there are two rival camps of editors, one advocating for straight-shooting democracy coverage that doesn't mince words about where the threat is coming from, and another that hovers over reporters demanding they obscure the Republican Party's singular culpability because that would be, quote, taking sides. Um, You cite some examples of that in your story, Dan Frumkin, but explain what what you are seeing and what that means to news consumers. Well, I should just say, by the way, that there was actually an even worse headline on the New York Times front page in capital letters that, that said, a simmering feud peaks in a search of Trump's home. Oh, my God. And so what you see here is that basically <laughs> the press needs to have conflict, is, is obsessed with conflict, needs mm-hmm. to have conflict. It doesn't really care whether the conflict is, is about something which is essentially moot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if somebody's fighting, there's mm-hmm. a fight, and both sides are fighting. And, and that... That leads to it. That's a tremendous disservice to the readers. I mean, it, it, the the worst example by far is the coverage of uh, of the January sixth committee and what's happened since. Mm-hmm. The 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 singular achievement of that committee, if you think back, you know, just a month, mm-hmm. was that it had established to the satisfaction of pretty much everybody except for the you know the, the willfully ignorant that uh, that prosecuting Trump was not a political. Idea political necessity mm-hmm. it was a moral necessity right um and that and i think i yeah, i felt like that really helped inoculate garland against the perception that what he would be doing would be political mm. and instead what happened was the the fbi you know uh, uh, does a search warrant on mar-a-lago because of documents that he stole and yes. then didn't give back and then lied about giving back yep. and and the press sees this as some sort of a political fight I know. You would think that they would have learned from just uh, days earlier, as you point out, from the January 6th committee that this is uh, not not just a moral issue, but a legal issue, a very serious legal issue. And I've had trouble, uh, Dan, you, you just used the word that uh, Donald Trump stole the documents from the White House. Uh, he did. 
And, you know, they are, yes, uh, purportedly highly classified, sensitive national security documents. Trump claims he declassified them all. But even if, even if given the benefit of the doubt on that, um, and we shouldn't, but uh, he, he, was, he was still not allowed to have just even one presidential record or memento or anything else at Mar-a-Lago. That would be stolen. Yet I have seen few in the media describe this theft for what it was, the, you know, of apparently hundreds of government documents from the White House when he left office. Um, there is no debate about that, and yet they will not say it. Why? What is that all about? Because that would be taking sides. Unfortunately, the truth has become so politicized in this day and age that simply asserting the truth is seen as political by these people, and they don't want to do that. Uh, it, it, you know, the, the basically, the news story should have been Justice Department finally searches Trump's home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the question should have been, why did it take so long? Yeah. You know, because we knew that he had these documents for ages. Uh, it, it, they, they want to cast everything as a conflict between Democrats and Republicans. That's what they want to do. And when it's a Republican, it seems like they don't want to call out the Republicans for being the ones to have done it. You, you cited one example, uh, an article, uh, I think this was Times, uh, by uh, Patrick Marley and Tom Hamburger, uh, headlined, quote, Michigan plot to breach <laughs> voting machines points to a national pattern. <laughs> what's what's the problem with that headline, Dan? Uh, Michigan didn't plot anything, Brad. It was the <laughs> Republicans who plotted it. <laughs> I mean, the, that article was just an amazing whitewash of what had happened. I, I, I felt like I was reading something from, well, from an alternate reality, because I uh, was. Yeah. Yeah, that's, well, we, we live in that alternate reality now, I'm afraid. One point that I have been harping on for months now uh, is the uh, and I guess it's similar to the stolen uh, documents, uh, but the media's failure to simply call out the actual crimes of Donald Trump in their stories, the yep. lengths to which they go to claim that Trump tried to reverse or undermine or overturn the results of the 2020 election to undo mm -hmm. them. Uh, Dan, he tried to steal a presidential election. He did it before all of our eyes. Why is it so difficult you know, they report on what he did, his efforts to undermine it and so forth. Why is it so difficult for them to actually report accurately that he tried to steal the election? And may I add how, how I think just like five years ago, I think everybody in the country would have agreed that trying to steal the presidential election was a bad thing. And <laughs> yes, ought to be, yes. whoever did it ought to be held accountable. Right. Um, but but what it's, you know, it's a little bit like the frog in the pot. I mean, the, mm. the media has just day after day, yeah. normalized what Trump does. It started doing that, you know, when he, when he came down the, elevator, the escalator mm -hmm. at, at Trump Towers. And, and rather than at any point, and it should have been the very first day, saying, this guy is a complete joke, a complete fraud, a complete liar, and, and should not be considered a serious presidential candidate. Every day, they just sort of figured out ways to let their old algorithm still work and not call it out. And then they got stuck. They couldn't say, look, you know, let's redo things. Let's stop and reconsider. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, you know, it's really sad that, for instance, uh, okay, CNN just had changed ownership. Uh, the Washington Post and the New York Times both recently got new editors-in-chief. There would have been a moment to say, okay, let's look at what's going on here. Let's realize that our main goal in life 
<laughs> is to create an informed electorate. Mm-hmm. We, it is not working. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So maybe we should not just keep doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and and there seems to be and well again maybe that's the value you know of having someone inside an ombudsman to say hey guys we're 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 failing at our mission uh, by mm-hmm. the way uh, and and I agree with your uh, frog in the boiling water uh, analogy there. Um, but I would say it goes back farther than the coming down the escalator, going back oh, to yeah. Dan uh, when, you know, you and I were on the air together years ago during the Bush era and thereafter where the media, I, you know, I was yelling and screaming that the Republican Party is going off the rails. And I was told it was because I was a Democrat. And I said, no, it you know is because I'm paying attention. It has nothing to do with what my political party is or isn't. Right. They took the war. They took the country to war on false pretenses, yeah. and then lied repeatedly to cover it up. Yeah. I think that's that's a that's kind of a problem. But again, <laughs> the media just sort of took it as it as it came. And and when Sarah Palin was nominated to be you know mm-hmm. the, the, the Republican nominee for for uh, for vice president, mm-hmm. any reasonable person would say, "What the hell is going on?" They've gone off the rails. But they weren't allowed to say that, it seems like. They, they checked themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was hopeful, and, uh, and I, just my last uh, thought here with you uh, for today, Dan, but I, I was hopeful at, at one point, you know, when um, Congressman Benny Thompson, the chair of the January 6th mm-hmm. committee, uh, in one of his opening statements, he referred to Trump's plot to, quote, steal the 2020 election. And I mm-hmm. thought, oh, great, finally, he's saying it, therefore... Maybe now the media will finally have mm-hmm. the permission to use that framing, um, you know, since public officials were. But then uh, I, I think I've come to maybe understand that in a corporate news setting, uh, since you're familiar with them, Dan, uh, does that only serve to make editors even more cautious about using that phrase? Because, you know, oh, now it's the framing of, of one side. It's of the Democrats, no matter how demonstrably <laughs> accurate it is. <laughs> I suspect that's exactly it, and and uh, you know the, the the media just just wraps itself up in its own weird algorithms all the time. I mean, for the longest time, they wouldn't say any any politician lied, right? Because that was too loaded. I suspect that steel is also they consider it too loaded, even though in this case it is an absolutely honest to God. You know, couldn't be more true explanation. <laughs> It's undeniable, and uh, if they would only say it, I think that the uh, American electorate would be more um, educated because they would know the truth, whether you like that word or not. Uh, Dan Frumkin is the uh, editor of Press Watch. You may have heard, but you can sign up for his newsletter at PressWatchers.org. I hope you will. He does a lot of critical work there and on the Twitters, where you can find him at simply (laughs) Frumkin. Uh, You can and should find and follow him there as well. Dan Frumkin, really great speaking with you after all of these years. Uh, Please don't make it so many uh, more years before you come back and uh, speak with us again, my friend. Brad, I never stopped loving you. (laughs) You're very kind. No one believes you. Thanks, Dan. (laughs) Bye. Uh, He's great. I I love him, which is why it's been so many years uh, trying to get him back on the show. I'm glad that he came back on. And he's got a fantastic voice, too, which is always nice. He's good on radio. I know. And there was just one thing that really, really jumped out at me that he had said. He said that uh, that this uh, firing of, or I should say the canceling of Brian Stelter is a mm-hmm. sacrifice on the altar of right-wing media. Yeah. Because, you know, they were, they were just relentlessly targeting, targeting Brian.
Brian Stelter yeah. for years now. Yeah. And and so for him that you know he's just another scalp for the right wing media and and I think that the Republican maximal outrage machine is a major factor in how CNN is making these changes. It's, I mean, it's a factor in not just CNN, but yes. all the media outlets. And, they react to what, to what Fox News does, what they say, what the right wing, you know, and, and there is no similar response, frankly. Right. Um, when the left is outraged about someone oh, yeah. or something, you never see them. <laughs> Nobody's afraid of, of yeah. any of the Democrats or any of the liberal yep. media coming out and saying, hey, you're lying. That's wrong. Now, you know, it's also partly their, you know, potentially their corporate media parent that they have now that seems to be making lots of big changes. But, you know, the point being that that working by the canceling re- Batgirl. But that's a different issue. <laughs> go, ahead. Different yeah, go ahead. But I'm just basically yeah. working the refs works. And yeah. that is why the Republicans and the right wing media lose their minds every <laughs> five minutes on anything mm-hmm. and everything. I mean, remember Mr. Potato Head? Yeah, this is stuff that actually works, and they they it works to both change the narrative and redirect the narrative. Yeah, it pays off for them. I mean, if I were uh, Jim Acosta right now at CNN, I would start prepping my resume mm. at this point because I think he's next. The right wing hates him because you know he was the White House uh, correspondent during the Trump years, and he actually yeah. asked real questions of Donald Trump, and they consider him therefore to be a far left wing uh what do they call in that earlier story socialist communist whatever <laughs> i mean you know it's all of course nonsense, and yes. when you have a journalist like Acosta actually doing the proper job of trying to hold officials accountable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, you will pay a price if you are holding them accountable, if they're Republicans who you are trying to hold accountable. That's basically how this works. Does not really work in the other direction, as we have seen. No, it doesn't. So uh, best of luck to both Brian Stelter and Jim Acosta for his future (laughs) firing. By the way, uh, Chris Licht, who's in charge now of CNN, until recently, he was hired away from um, Stephen Colbert's show. He was the on CBS. That's yeah, right. He ran the, the the Late Show on CBS. Not exactly a bastion of you know right wing uh, Republicanism. True. So it's very strange that he is in there saying, "Yeah, we need to get rid of these uh, people like Stelter and Acosta because uh, we need to go straight down the middle." Guess what? The middle is not, you know, halfway between Republicans and Democrats. The middle is the truth. Yes. No like, matter whether it's being told by Republicans or Democrats. Like you have always said, it's not about right or left. It's about right and wrong. And here I would say it's about the truth and verifiable facts. But, yeah, this is this is not uh, this is not voting well for the uh, education of the electorate going forward. Did I say it's not about right and left? It's about right and wrong. Yeah. I'm brilliant. (laughs) Quick break, and we are back with more brilliance, by the way. I can't wait for this. Randy Rainbow is back. That's next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. (laughs) 
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Hey, this is Brad. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? You know, there might be uh, many songs about rainbows, but there are not nearly enough songs by Randy Rainbow, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. True. Uh, we've had a drought for quite a while. He's been on tour. You know, that's his actual name, by the way. I know, his, his real, real name, name in real life on his birth certificate. Born with. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, there's never enough for a Randy Rainbow song, so I'm delighted there is a new one that we can bring you uh, today to finish out today's program. Okay, everyone, welcome back to the January 6th hearings, which will finally determine the criminal culpability of former fake president Donald Jessica Trump. <laughs> Now let's go to some behind-the-scenes DVD extras from his pre-recorded address to the nation on January 7th. Okay, whenever you're ready, sweetie. And we are rolling. Everyone, please clear the set. We're rolling. Thank you. Okay, Mr. President, you're on in five. You got this, bitch. Three, two. I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. Sing out, Louise. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say... Just say you're a big fat loser. My only goal <laughs> was to ensure the integrity of the vote. Let's take that again. I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. Yesterday is a hard word for me. Yesterday. Such a complicated word to say. When his dentures start to slip away, he's not okay with yesterday. Plain to see how he screwed with our democracy. Binging Big Macs while he watched TV. This stain on our history. Joined now by the man everyone's talking about, Attorney General Garland. Judy, seditious conspiracy, <laughs> espionage, bad hair. What the hell is it going to take to nail this guy? No pressure. The Justice Department has been doing the most wide-ranging investigation in its history. Well, step on it, sis, because he's getting ready to announce, and we cannot let him be president again. 
I'm running out of show tunes. The Justice Department has, from the beginning, been moving urgently to bring to justice everybody who's criminally responsible for interfering with the peaceful transfer of power. We said, girl, time to go. He said, no. That piece of trash. Yesterday, well, oh, uh, thank God, thank God, we we just need more of him <sighs> to help us keep going, no matter what. Anyway, uh, thank you very much for listening to today's program. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Actually, we hope you enjoyed it more. <laughs> that said, my thanks to our producer today, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Dan Frumkin of PressWatchers.org. You should sign up for his newsletter yes. there. And uh, if you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, where there is no paywall ever, at least so far. Thanks to those of you kind enough to uh, stop by bradblog.com slash donate with a one-time donation or even better, a uh, automated monthly a donation of any amount you like you can do all of that at bradblog.com slash donate thanks you thanks you in advance <laughs> thank you in advance and yes please go out there and help educate the electorate that is something that we can all participate in and and help make sure that people are informed about what's actually happening in this country just FYI that has been our goal from day one yes. whether we have succeeded I don't know we've but been doing this for almost 20 years and look what a disaster things are now <laughs> so your fault. might be <laughs> Anyway, uh, I think that's it. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and Twitters, you will find me at the Brad Blog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1997. That was the day that a strike by the Teamsters Union against UPS ended with a victory for the union. The strike had started 15 days earlier. 
More than 180,000 UPS workers participated in the action. It was the first nationwide strike by UPS workers. At the time, UPS delivered 80% of all packages in the United States. The company, known for its signature brown trucks, delivered 12 million packages a day. The key issue of the strike was that the company increasingly relied on part-time workers. The insecurities of part-time work were growing, not just at UPS, but for workers in industries all across the country. The strike settlement came with the union winning its core issues. The company agreed to convert 10,000 part-time jobs to full-time positions over the course of the next five years. The victory was significant for the U.S. labor movement. The 1980s and 1990s saw new attacks on labor unions and working people, starting with President Ronald Reagan's breaking of the air traffic controller union strike in 1981. The UPS victory in a national strike with broad rank-and-file support encouraged working people beyond the Teamsters Union. Announcing the settlement of the strike, ABC News anchor Peter Jennings declared, quote, it's been the most dramatic confrontation between industry and organized labor in two decades. Teamsters president Ron Carey said, quote, it's what this country needs. Decent jobs, a chance for the dream, a chance to purchase a home, a chance to bring your children up properly, a chance to send them to college. Enough is enough. And it's about time that people start fighting back on this. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Hi, everybody. Juliana Forlano here from the Juliana Forlano Show on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn. Do you like to know what's going on in the world but don't like walking away from your news show feeling all depressed or jacked up? Do you like political humor? Then check out our show, the Juliana Forlano Show, Saturday at 11 a.m., Sunday at 9 p.m. on the Progressive Voices Network or find us at GiulianaForlano.com.